This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Chris Gavin. And uh, Chris, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Absolutely. Um, I'm Chris Gavin. I am, I guess, something of a modern day hunter gatherer. I try to uh, hunt and gather most of my own food. And um, I met Luke at the Midwest Fall Harvest Festival here just a few months back. I don't remember, Luke, if we uh, were you in my uh, introduction to foraging class or was it? It was the uh, fire starting. Fire starting. Yep. Fire starting. So, yep. I'm trying to get into primitive skills and uh, pass them on to folks. I love it. I always uh, feel like that's such a great way to one connect with people, especially if they're passionate about the same things you are, makes it easier. And, uh, and to be able to pass knowledge on that either they don't have or, or want to know more about and you being able to, even if you're not like, I'm not a master or at least perceive myself as a master of anything, but at the same time, anything that I've learned and it's a skill and I can give that to somebody and let them run with it. That's an amazing thing. So kudos to you for starting to do that and, uh, you know, pass on that knowledge because that's a wonderful thing to do because there's been so much that has been lost. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's funny because I I tend to kind of like project onto other people. I think we all do it to a degree. And, you know, I, I, I oftentimes think that other people already know a lot of these skills or if they're interested in them, in them they would have gone out and and learned a lot of them so you know about 
I've, I've had, I've had hints all along the way, you know, in high school, I was raised in a family that went out canoeing in places like Boundary Waters and on the Wisconsin River and camping. And when my friends from the cross country team were like, hey, you, you, you know how to canoe. Can you take us out on Lake Wingra and in the Madison area? And I'm like, sure. And, you know, we throw the canoes in the water and I start paddling and they're all looking to me for instruction. I, I, I was dumbfounded. I was like, everybody knows how to canoe. If I know how to canoe, anybody can do it. Um, and I've just picked up skills uh, all along the way, just because it fascinates me. And uh, probably about six or seven years ago, my wife turned to me and she said, you know, people would pay you to like take them out into the woods and show them what they can eat or, you know, show them how to read sign for, for deer hunting. And I was like, no, they wouldn't. And, but it turns out people will. So I, I started a business called Eagle Outdoor Skills and and still, even if I even after I started the business and started teaching people classes, you know, people come up to me was like, "Oh, do you do you teach fire fire making classes?" And I was like, "Well, you know, I I was just dismissive of the concept because I thought everybody knows how to start a fire. If you want to start a fire, you just watch a YouTube video. If you don't know, um, but but people want you know want those skills and want that knowledge and want to see it done you know in a, in a personal fashion so um so I'm, I'm still to this day people come to me and say oh do you know how to do x y or z and and obviously you know I'm still I still consider myself very much a student of life and I'm still picking up skills that other people have been doing their whole lives um but I'm still finding things where people come up to me and say, Oh, do you know about basket weaving? And I'm like, sure I do. And they're like, well, could you teach me? And I was like, Hey, maybe I should offer a class in this because I forgot that I knew how to make baskets and that people might want to know how to do that. So that's kind of uh, how my business started and is evolving. Um, and of course, not every, all the classes I do are through my business. Sometimes other people, hire me to teach at their events and then also sometimes it's through volunteer efforts so I'm a scout master here in uh, the Madison Wisconsin area and I've found that to be really rewarding to reach out with youth and and uh, teach them skills that I consider to be really important absolutely so it's funny that you mentioned the basket weaving because I think I, I've made one basket in my lifetime I'm pretty sure I was like maybe like 12 or 14 and it wasn't taught. I saw something and it was like, I saw a basket and I'm like, I bet you I could do that. And so I actually pulled strips of bark and started weaving them together and actually made an actual basket out of it. Um, I couldn't figure out the handle. Um, yeah, but, that's tricky. But uh, I, I made the basket and I had it for a long, long time. And then I couldn't tell you where, you know, where it went today or probably got thrown out at some point along the way, but that was the only one I ever made. <laughs> and now I'm kind of thinking to myself, you know, maybe that wouldn't be a bad skill because you see people making baskets out of so many different things. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's not just bark or, or it's strips of wood, you know, that they actually, well, not so much anymore because there's hardly any black ash left. But um, nope. they uh, they would use the strips of wood and weave together and make black ash baskets and different things like that. But it, like watching people make it out of fibers, different fibers and stuff, that is something oh, yeah. that just is like, 
what? So fascinating to me. And that's something I probably should dig more into. Um, what's like your range of expertise when it comes to making baskets? What do you, what do you kind of utilize? So I learned how to first make baskets, um, at uh, the North House, House Folk School up in um, Grand Marais, Minnesota, probably about 15 years ago or so. And we were like taught the traditional, the traditional Anishinaabe method of making black ash baskets. So we were out there wailing on a black ash log with, uh, with aluminum baseball bats so that we could peel apart the annual growth rings and cut them into strips. Um, so that was a really like really cool immersive way to learn how to do basket making um and since then i've made some black ash baskets um but typically i will actually use a lot of invasive exotics that grow in my area for making my baskets so i've done a lot of um well willow's not so much an invasive exotic but it's it's a resource that could just replenish itself really quickly so i've made a few willow baskets um, but I've done a lot with honeysuckle um, and I've, I've joked with friends that if I ever go into business making honeysuckle baskets, my, my tagline might be like committed to destroying the resource or something nice. like, I hate just wipe out all the honeysuckle. honeysuckle. So yeah. bad, especially yeah. when hunting and, and I never knew this before. Right. But once I discovered like how invasive it is and you would see it and you'd go, man, sucks i don't want to hunt that area right because there's just mm. so much honeysuckle it's so thick so thick yeah but didn't realize that it was invasive and then once i learned that it just like fueled the fire even more and now i'll be sitting in a tree staring at certain patches of honeysuckle and just like angry knowing it's shading <laughs> out some native plant that no longer exists because of it in that region or that area that i'm in and i'm like oh i just want to destroy it all so yeah that's an awesome tagline <laughs> yeah it's rough I, I remember i've i've had that feeling before of just like almost seething at invasive exotics until i realized it's kind of like the, there's been a meme floating around online that lately that says, you know, if you choose to be upset with the snow, you'll still have as much snow in your life, but you'll have less joy. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not accepting of honeysuckle or buckthorn or garlic mustard on the landscape, but I've, I've learned that if I, if I rage against it, it doesn't actually help that much. So yeah. with, the, with the garlic mustard, that's just a, I, I would just pull it and eat it um, right. as much as I possibly can you know when i give foraging classes too i often tell people you know the when you're looking at foraging you know sustainability is going to be really important i mean sustainability is important with any natural resource endeavor and you know it's a, it's a real spectrum out there you've got something on one end of the spectrum like wild leeks or ramps where you know you're typically going to want to harvest a small amount of the population and then at the way other end of the spectrum, you've got garlic mustard, where even when I'm pulling garlic mustard to eat, I'm pulling like six times as much as I could possibly consume and just pinching off the best parts and putting the rest in a plastic bag so that it, so I'm making room in the forest for the, the, thing, the things that ought to be there. So, right. That's, uh, that's, you know, and, and I'm not saying like, I absolutely hate it because they are plants and they all have a purpose just it makes me sad i guess i should say 
that there's other things that aren't there or I'm not going to be able to discover because of it. So <laughs> I don't oh, want to, yeah. you know, I like, and so I actually created a couple t-shirts that I haven't released yet, but it's, uh, it's like stop the hate type uh, t-shirt. And then it's, you know, like dandelions and things like that. And it's, uh, I haven't quite refined the tagline, but it's going to be something like plants, not weeds or, you know, something like that. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's rough, too, because, I mean, you have things like, you just mentioned dandelions, and the uh, those, uh, many people, uh, most people uh, believe that, you know, they're something of an invasive exotic, but of course, they only tend to invade golf courses and lawns, which, you know, that's a relatively depauperate ecosystem as it is, so I'm always glad to see them because it means that they're not spraying in that particular spot. Uh, so I feel free to forage there. And oftentimes I'm foraging the dandelions, but those, those others though, the honeysuckle and the buckthorn and the garlic mustard, that, that thread is, that thread is quite real. I remember in a conservation biology class in college, learning that the number one driver of extinction in, uh, in our modern world is, um, habitat loss but number two in gaining fast was invasive species uh and they'll, they'll displace the natives and uh that I took that class 15 plus years ago so <laughs> it could be that invasive invasive exotics have already uh dethroned habitat loss as far as as far as driving uh biodiversity loss so it's definitely it's definitely a real threat that we have to consider and uh one one kind of one of the neat things as a forager and as it would happen as a basket maker who uses uh um honeysuckle and some other things on occasion but a lot of times the things that we're out that us foragers are out for in the landscape a lot of them are invasive exotics you know many times they were brought over here like like garlic mustard for example there's a reason garlic mustard is here it's a staple in eastern european diets and somebody brought it from the old world over here because they remembered it from their polish grandmother's garden and planted it in their garden and it got out and just grew all over the place so i mean there's so many edibles out in the landscape that some of us know because they're edible some of us know because they're our worst enemy in the garden some of <laughs> us know because we encounter them when we're deer hunting in the woods but you know uh wild parsnip um garlic mustard uh the list goes on and on for invasive exotics that came over here because people planted them in their gardens and they got out went crazy yeah that's you saying that just reminded me of a commercial I heard on the radio, on a local radio station the other day, and it's kind of like a rural radio station, so they have a lot of like farm commercials on it. And one of them, it was like a Halloween type setting, like a scary, spooky, and the guy's like, oh no, it's going to invade my bean fields. Here it comes. <laughs> it's pigweed. And I'm like... Oh no! You have got to be kidding me! And then it's like spray so and so on your fields to present prevent the pigweed. And I'm thinking to myself, or you could just you know 
maybe harvest it or not worry about it and take those seeds and make flour or whatever. I mean, I'm pretty sure like a lot of indigenous cultures actually utilize that once they shifted towards a little bit of a modern farming aspect. Well, uh, I guess for then modern farming, but they utilize plants like that and, and use the seeds and stuff. So, I mean, it's definitely got a purpose. <laughs> They're acting like it's some scary monster, and you're a common person that's never heard of it. And they hear that commercial, or like, "Oh, pigweed's horrible. Why would you?" You know, yeah. and then and then yeah. there it goes with that negative connotation, just like dandelions have gotten for so long. Oh yeah, it's amazing how much uh, you know. A lot of these air quote weeds that we talk about are are edibles and i think i was reading one of michael Pollan's books that it's no it's no accident that you know a lot of these invasive exotics take over disturbed areas when you look up when you look them up in the field guides they'll say where do you find them disturbed areas because a lot of these things like purslane uh pigweed lambs quarters a lot of them were semi-domesticated centuries if not millennia ago so a place like a garden or a farm field is really it, it, it's a natural habitat for them so they'll they'll grow readily in those areas and you know i i tend to take a, a dim view of how spray happy our our culture has gotten and, uh, and uh, how uh, crazy our agriculture has gotten um but at the same time you know my my wife has a vegetable garden in the backyard um and you know i prefer to reap what i didn't so um so i like to go out in the woods and forage but she has all sorts of things popping up in her garden and it causes a little bit of a war between us because you know she'll have purslane coming up and she'll want to weed it and i was like no 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 give it let, let it get just a little <laughs> higher and then I, I swear i'll harvest it out and uh and she'll be like, okay, the, the the lambs quarters though over here. Can you please like get to it, get to, get taken care of? I'm like, oh, as soon as it gets just a little bit taller, and then I'll <laughs> come and take it out. And if I don't take it out, then then of course she's like, see, I told you, it's it's taking over <laughs> my tomato patch or something like that. So so she's thing. she's always telling me I've got to like stay on top of the weeds, and I'm like, I'm get a little bit bigger so I can then harvest them and pull them in, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, then I usually try to turn around and make something for, for dinner. And it, 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 that, that's how the piece is made. You know, yeah. when I make like portopita with the, uh, with the lamb's quarters or I put, put them in a salad or something like that, then, then she's, then I, I get back in her good graces. So by, what was the dish? Tortopita? Uh, Hortopita. So yeah, that's a, that's a really cool, um, so Horta, uh, if, if you're familiar with Spanakopita, a lot of people know Spanakopita. It's like a pie. It's uh, it's phyllo dough with um, feta cheese and and spinach in it. That's Spanakopita. Uh, uh, it's Greek for spinach pie. Hortopita means herb pie. And it's kind of interesting because when you're getting into like wild foods, oftentimes people will say, well, how, where do you find the recipes for this stuff? And I'd say, oftentimes, if you look at cultures that still have recipes that just say greens or herbs in their, in their name, uh, that's a really helpful uh, hint for a recipe that'll lend itself to just throwing in a whole bunch of wild foraged greens. And horta is a really great example of this because horta in Greek just means herb. 
So if you go out with a Greek friend and you're like, what's horta? I want to know the plant horta. The guy or the, the lady might point at a dandelion and say, that's horta. And you're like, oh, horta, that's Greek for dandelion. And then he'll turn around and say, that's horta. And he'll point at like um, lamb's quarters. And you're like, but you just said that the dandelion is. It's like, no, no, it's, it's all horta. Horta is like any herb you can eat. Um, and in English, we've kind of moved away from that a little bit. I mean, herb used to have that meaning. And uh, these days, typically, it seems like herb is used as a, either a medicinal or a spice. Right. Um, originally, in some of the older uh, field guides, like uh, Ewell Gibbons and whatnot, you'll see the term pot herb. And pot herb is kind of this idea of some green that you just kind of throw into the pot. Um, but uh you don't tend to see that term much in like the better homes and gardens or the, the Betty Crocker cookbooks. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but uh, another, like if you look in Indian uh, foods, like from the subcontinent of India, uh, sag means greens. So a lot of recipes, like a lot of people know panak paneer, which is, it's a uh, spinach and cheese, but sag paneer just means greens and cheese or sunsai is Japanese for uh, I think it literally translates to um, the greens or the plants that grow in the mountains. The idea meaning that out past the arable land uh, where you have your garden and your farm fields, the, the plants that grow out in the mountains are the, the ones you forage and then put into meals. So Interesting. So you read a little bit of history and uh, definitely into the cuisine of different cultures as well, huh? Oh yeah, I, I mean one one has to, and and you know it's, I guess it's part of my my nature perhaps, but um, you know these things it's like an ecosystem. These things are also interconnected. The food we eat, where it comes from, the cultures behind it. Um, there's so many different touch touching nodes. I mean I'm I'm kind of one of those people who will intend to look up something on Wikipedia and like two hours later, <laughs> like, you know, 10 p.m. and you know, I, I meant to look up, you know, some obscure fact about white-tailed deer, and now I'm, like, learning about Gila monsters in the American Southwest or something like that. So um, it <laughs> it is partly my nature, but it serves me well in the kitchen, at least. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've seen your Instagram, and it's definitely mostly all food. Oh, yeah. Uh, as far as that goes, but it, it, it looks good. Most of it's wild cuisine, so that's cool. You're trying to use oh, a, a lot story. of uh, resources, you know. Yeah, there's a story behind that too, because um, I used to I used to tell people that I'm not the kind of um, that I would never be the kind of person to Instagram their meals <laughs> or put that thing on Facebook. And then the funny thing happened is the the pandemic struck and I got bored and I started Instagramming my meals. And this is like stuff I've been eating, you know, for, for years now. And I, at first, yeah, as a Midwesterner, I was also like, Oh, this will look like bragging. And I was like, I don't care. I'm bored. And I just started throwing stuff up <laughs> online. And, and the, the, um, the feedback has really been very positive though. You know, people ask me for recipes and, uh, if I have the time, I'll share the recipes. Um, and, you know, for me, wild foods is all about living closer to the land. So if I can, if I can either through my classes or through my social media posts, you know, encourage other people to eat wild foods, then they'll form these new relationships with the plants and animals out on the landscape. And I'm I'm a firm believer that 
that will do these connections and relationships that people will form then with these plants and animals and, and fungi will lead to people wanting to protect them and, and have a deeper understanding for them. So, you know, when I give my classes, I always end by talking about how, you know, I might be out here giving people this knowledge, but really at the, at the end of the day, I sleep better at night knowing that I've shared information about the natural world that's caused people to form a more intimate connection with the landscape. And, you know, with my foraging classes, you know, when you're talking about taking a piece of something from nature and putting it in your mouth and making it part of your body, it doesn't, most uh, relationships don't come in a more intimate form than that. And, you know, when I when I facilitate that sort of relationship forming between people and plants or people and other animals or people and fungi, then I don't have to worry about how they're going to vote when they go to the polls and there's a referendum for, you know, protecting a green space, or I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, how they're going to see some initiative put forth by their local or state or even federal government, uh, you know, uh, something like the, what's the new bill in, uh, it's in Washington right now that I'm hoping gets passed the Recover America's Wildlife Act, I think. Um, Ooh, I don't know. That that one is... I know I, there's I think, a couple bad ones that are uh, trying to eliminate hunting in different forms and stuff like that, especially uh, like uh, Washington and Oregon trying to eliminate bear hunting, New Jersey... All kinds of stuff like that. I, I'm not sure though. There's so much stuff out there anymore, and I'm gonna be honest. I've almost completely tuned out from it and become uh. like uh, anti-political anymore. Not that I was ever like super political before, but I, I've just got such a disgust. And the more time I spend in nature, the further away I want to get from, you know, that part of the world as far as you know my my space that it doesn't even enter my bubble anymore and uh there's some different uh gun laws and things going on right now that i haven't even paid attention to and normally i'm pretty on top of that but anymore man and it's like you said though that nature the relationship that that bond that you build with it um it's kind of crazy because if somebody would have told me that wasn't really a forager other than like two years ago that you know, now these, these are more than just weeds. They're plants. They're, you know, you're, they're your friends. They can heal you. Uh, they can provide for you. You can eat these, you know, this tree. And the thing was, is I had a relationship, right? As a hunter, you have that relationship, but it's not fully developed because there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between our food, our relationship, the spirituality, all these different things. All of that seems severed these days. And now, I mean, they're raising meat in labs in Petri dishes and trying to feed that to people, even though it's cells, you know, that they took from an animal or whatever. I mean, if you want to talk about a disconnect that people have, that's it right there. That's oh, yeah. missing the whole meaning of whether or not you believe in, which is crazy because almost all cultures believe in a creator, whether it's Sky Mother, whether it's, you know, God, whether whoever it is. They believe in a creator and that creator tailored these things for us. And to like completely deny that, I have a hard time with people doing that because they clearly haven't spent enough time in it, immersing themselves in it, I think. And then, you know, like, but that relationship and 
taking that food and having it become part of your body, that's the truth. And so many people don't do that, that they don't care or don't notice it. And I had an experience, which I shared on one of my episodes, but that was the first time I ever talked about it. But out foraging, looking for mushrooms, I was looking for hen of the woods, didn't find any at the moment, see a puff ball. I was like, oh, cool. Went to go grab it. It was well past expired. And I was like, oh, well, you know what? Nature will provide. That was my mindset and my attitude. And as soon as I said that to myself and turned around, boom, there was like 20 different puff balls all over the place. (laughs) Picked a couple of those and said, you know, I'm going to explore another area that I haven't been into, but I know it's got a lot of mature oaks. And sure enough, guess what? There was perfect size hens that weren't buggy, had just popped. Mm. They were, you know, like just the right size, a couple handfuls picked those like once you barely even need to clean because you don't have to worry you can rinse them you don't have to soak them you know and ended up finding like six of those on one tree on one oak tree and at that moment i put my hand on the tree and i actually even took a picture of because i was like people aren't going to believe me like unless i take this picture and explain the story and at that moment i thank that tree And I was like, you do more for me than I could ever do for you. You allow me to hunt out of it. You feed the animals around me. You know, you you provide this relationship with this fungi that also produces fruit. And all of these things are because you're here. What could I ever do for you? And, 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 And most people don't have that mindset because they haven't been there. They haven't put themselves in that experience. It's crazy. It's crazy that we got away from that. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely, yeah, I think uh, even your average outdoors person, I don't think spends enough time outdoors and, and the rest of us, you know, really need to get out there because, I mean, there's so many different paths forward too, um, you know, when I'm giving my foraging classes, I oftentimes, I just can't help myself, I will talk about, because everything's so interrelated that it'll naturally come up that I'm a hunter and that I hunt for food. And I've had people in my classes say, Oh, well, you must really like vegans must drive you crazy then. And I'm thinking not at all, not at all. I mean, I mean, I've heard lots of vegetarian and vegan arguments about, you know, just living more lightly on the earth. And I know a lot of foragers who are vegetarian or vegan and, you know, it's like, Hey, we're all on different paths, but moving in the right direction. So you know, as long as people are getting out there and experiencing it and know where their food comes from, because I've, you know, I've, I've met, I've also met vegetarians that, you know, have no idea where their food's coming from. And, you know, if it's a soybean farm being in the industrial model that's being sprayed, it's like, I tend to think that venison might be a little bit better for the environment than, uh, than you know, your average soy burger. Um, and then at the same time, it, my own logic comes right around to bite me in the butt because where I hunt, I'm pretty sure that most of the deer have been eating soybeans from the kids <laughs> too. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm eating some agriculturally subsidized venison. Um, you know, when, when the does come in and they've got that little dimple right in the, in the middle of their back because they've got so much so much fat on them that I, I mean i make soap out of deer fat um and you know here in wisconsin's driftless area there's a couple of deer where it's you know i, I 
I take them and I'm, I'm skinning them and the fat that's underneath, I'll make more than a year supply of soap for myself, my friends, my family off of just one deer. Cause there's some well-fed corn, corn fed doughs roaming around here. So, you know, it's one of those things where everything's just so interconnected. It's fascinating to me. Um, to get out there and see that, uh, like your story about the the oak and the and the, uh, the matakis. So, I mean, that doesn't even like touch on the acorns that could be harvested, or or the acorns that the squirrels could harvest, and then you shoot the squirrels. Um, yeah. So and, and the deer the and everything so, else, <laughs> and providing me a place to kill the deer. So it's yeah, it's full yeah. circle, and everything is connected, and, and people just yep. don't realize that anymore. But what I find fascinating is uh, you talking about the soap. I've always wanted to do that, and I've had some deer that I mean, no joke, had like a, a one inch fat cap on them, just yep, throughout the whole back and the hind quarter might even be thicker than that, and it's like, yep. whoa. Um, you know, but so many times I've taken the tallow and put it in the freezer and it's like, and then I never end up doing that with it. Sometimes I've done some other stuff, tried the whole chapstick thing with the beeswax and stuff like that, but, um, never did the soap. But one of the things that you talked about was, you know, you're eating the deer with the soy, you know, that's probably eating the soy. I mean, that's anything. And you see all these people talking about, oh yeah, you know, organic you know, meat flown in fresh this morning because I dropped this duck, right? And it's like, no, buddy. I guarantee you that ducks probably <laughs> hit every cornfield from, you know, Canada all the way down here. So <laughs> there's no way. Yeah. It's full more GMOs <laughs> than probably a duck that you could raise on your own property. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a few years back, uh, so, you know, in uh, in Wisconsin, they just recently proposed a sandhill season, um, and, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting cause I, I give tours, uh, for probably wow, last almost 15 years. I've, 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 I've got a very part-time job giving tours at Aldo Leopold's shack, uh, near Baraboo, Wisconsin. And when we go down to the Wisconsin river there, there's, there's almost always a bunch of sandhill cranes there. And in one of Aldo Leopold's essays called Marshland Elegy, he talks about how, even if cranes are not like a keystone species if they disappear from a wetland something like just spiritual in nature is lost um and it's different and a lot of people who read that passage these days think he was talking about um whooping cranes you know because they're so endangered but in his day he was talking about any cranes sandhill cranes um i think at you know, when he was professor of wildlife ecology at UW-Madison, there was like 42 breeding pairs of sandhill cranes in the whole state of Wisconsin. And, you know, now they're just all over the place um, uh, to such an extent that, you know, going, tying it in with uh, our conversation about uh, wildlife eating corn, they've recently, the farmers have recently had to treat their corn with a substance that's distasteful to cranes because as they're planting it, the cranes are following tractors around eating eating the seed corn um and then i think it was about two or three years ago there was a hunt um proposed through the legislature the legislation uh legislature here in um here in wisconsin and i've heard compelling arguments um you know mostly centered around how at dawn and dusk when you're you know your best chances for hunting a whooping crane and a sandhill crane you know, a, 
the one's gray and one's white, but you know, at first light, everything's kind of gray. Uh, so it's concern about whooping cranes getting incidentally taken if we have a sandhill uh, season. I've heard animal rights groups talk about how it's like the state peace symbol, which for me is a less compelling argument. Um, I've heard people say, well, why would you ever hunt such a thing? It's just this long gangly bird. But, you know, when you sink a fillet knife into the, into the S muscles, it just keeps going deep in there and you, you peel it back and you see how dark that meat is. And it's like, you know, the, the classic ribeye of the sky. Um, we all know of that phrase before, but you know, it's like, it's like, the dark meat that tastes like beef but the 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 fat is like greasy it's it's like a it's like a cheeseburger or something you know it's just so like a burger cooked in duck fat or um, something. <laughs> <laughs> yep exactly but for, for me one of the coolest things is you know if you're like hey i really don't think we should be hunting these for you know uh, various different reasons or if you think hey we really should be hunting these things for various different reasons i'm just pleased as punch that we can be having this conversation because you know as recently as the 60s and 70s in wisconsin this was not a conversation to be had because there weren't enough cranes to support a hunt so no matter where you fall on the should we or should we not have a sandhill crane season in wisconsin i think it's really cool that we're like this is a conversation we can have same thing with timber wolves i've heard a lot of people say no you know there's no no uh there's no good wolves but a dead wolf and i've heard people say hey we need to protect them all until they make it right down to your neck of the woods luke i mean i've, I've heard people say that you know they used to be in illinois so we they, shouldn't they did in fact mm-hmm. I, I have friends that have pursuing wild game in wild places tune into hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment. S- seen some in Illinois, um, not in recent years, but it was kind of hush hush. But I believe that the Department of Natural Resources actually may have released a small like breeding pair or two um, to keep wildlife in check in a few areas that aren't too far from me. And it was like not known about. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not saying impossible at all. Don't get me wrong. It's just it sounds it sounds like a. I, I run into some old school hunters who are like, oh, the DNR is releasing rattlesnakes to control the turkey. Well, this was a fenced-in or... area. It was a completely fenced-in area. Um, but over the years, kids and stuff have cut fences to go sneak into there and party and do other things so Mm. i'm not 100 percent ruling it out uh, you know because the person that told me is a very reliable source that they've physically seen it and i'm like sure it wasn't a coyote and he's like a coyote and a timber wolf look nothing alike so you know so i can't really argue with him on that but you know not not knowing fully, I can't say, but I've I've heard some talk of that 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 almost would make me believe it because I've heard other people saying it besides the person that told me that they saw one that never said the stories of them releasing it. So it's a yeah. possibility, you know. <laughs> stranger stranger things have happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to, it's, it's funny because like, like we were talking slightly about politics earlier and I'm like politically all over the board. Um, <laughs> well, all my, all my liberal friends think I'm conservative. All my conservative friends think I'm liberal. Um, I usually just say that there's, there's never a position on any topic. So lonely is one that starts out. Well, it's complicated. So I, I tend to think that, wildlife management done through the federal and state governments has been wildly successful um, in this country. I mean, the North American model of, of wildlife management has really done a lot of great things. Uh, it's definitely made some missteps along the way. And oftentimes the government is the, the last ones to admit that they've made a mistake along the way, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, they they have been quite successful at reintroductions of a lot of different species. I mean, look at the black bear, for instance. It was completely eradicated from Oklahoma and Arkansas, and that's one of the greatest success stories. I mean, you talk to somebody like uh, Clay Newcomb, and he'll tell you all about it, and that it's one of the greatest uh, reintroductions that's ever happened. And it's true. I mean, you look at numbers, and they're strong, and everybody's able to go and hunt them. In fact, I believe when you buy your hunting license and you buy your tags with your hunting license, a bear tag is included with your deer tags. So, I mean, that right there tells you that that's a success story within itself, that people almost hunted it to extinction or actually did hunt it to extinction. And it was such a part of a staple of their culture in Arkansas for such a long time and then it's eradicated and here it is it's back again and it's it's thriving I mean granted there's quite a few people that uh, don't hunt anymore compared to numbers back then but once again different lifestyle right we've gotten away from that but I'd love to see uh, and a lot of people argue with me on this one but it's I'd love to see as many people as I can get into hunting because that's more voices we have to protect animals and 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 have those resources to, to fight for things that we, we need and to fight for things that uh, we need to take care of. And uh, they say to me, you know, like, well, what happens when there's X amount of, you know, numbers or there's too many hunters? I said, well, we'll address that problem when we get to it. But I, I feel like we're never going to get there. Um, I mean, unless it's some apocalyptic scenario where all of a sudden everybody starts hunting, you know, and then they wipe out animals. I don't really foresee that happening. I'd be more worried about like the doings of modern agriculture and, and, you know, man and what they're doing. Like you said about the treating the corn, um, what, what long-term effects is, effects is that having? What's the stuff they're putting on the corn that makes it taste bad? Could it be long-term carcinogen? Is it going to be something that, you know eventually wipes out the population of the the cranes the sandhill cranes anyway and we just don't know it yet i mean these are all things that you know run through my mind more so than people going out and sticking an arrow in something or or shooting a shotgun at it you know oh absolutely yeah i'm i'm also a big fan on on taking people out into the woods and or showing them how to hunt or or you know turning people on there's that classic um, you know, uh, venison diplomacy uh, concept of, of uh, you know, one, one of the things I like to do with my, my meals that I post on social media is show people that, you know, venison can look like, look really tasty. It can look appealing. And, and 
And I should know because the things I was doing to venison 15, 20 years ago when I first started hunting, um, I mean, it was a sin against meat and man. I would overcook my venison. Wrapping it in bacon. Uh, all, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> that one. All sorts of stuff. I, I, I wish that wrapping it in bacon was like, was how I started off mistreating venison. Um, you know, I, I would, you know, back in the day when I was like, oh, food safety, I've got to cook everything thoroughly before I realized that, you know, venison is best rare. And then once I realized it was best rare, then I only knew to serve it rare. I didn't, it was, it took a few more years before I was like, oh, or just braise the bejesus out of it. And then, you know, that's a really great way to, serve up venison too i was i was you know back so i'm an an adult onset hunter i was raised in a family where um butter knives were almost too dangerous for kids to play with so the idea that uh my folks were gonna let me go out and hunt with my grandpa for deer was like "Mm, how about not this year So, you know, I, I didn't really have any idea of, of shoot of like what it took to shoot my own uh, food. Um, it wasn't until I, uh, you know, completely broke those chains. And after graduating high school, I went off into the Marine Corps. And uh, at that point, my parents were not about to uh, try to control um, what access I had to, to in terms of weaponry and whatnot. Um, but you know, when I came back after the Marine Corps and, and, uh, felt much more confident around firearms and everything, I, I looked at my grandpa and I was like, I, I think I'm ready to go deer hunting with you. And, and, uh, that's, that's how I got into hunting. I, I started big, you know, a lot of people start off in their, as a, as a youth or in their teens squirrel hunting and, you know, move up to, to bigger things. I, I started with, I started with deer in my early twenties and have worked to smaller things really. Um, though I definitely keep venison on the menu. It's, it's the main staple really in our household. Um, but I, I really think it's important to get people out into the woods. I know very few people who, you know, go through that experience of, of spending that much time in the woods and actually harvesting an animal that are not then, converted to seeing that how how they are becoming a natural part of the ecosystem at that point and not just some i'm here and that's over there you know i'm i'm living in a house and that's a forest or a farm field out there that is divorced from me and i just you know go to the grocery store and buy pork or turkey or something all ground up in a styrofoam package I think people feel so much more connected to the landscape when they, when they do things like go hunting and, or make baskets or, or even start a fire, a campfire or, or, you know, in places like where we live, Luke, you know, fire was actually part of the landscape before Europeans came and tend, tended to suppress fire, yeah. uh, regular fire schedule. But, you know, you go out, you go see a burned out prairie or burned out oak savanna and you can just be like wow fire is you know just it's it's also part of the ecosystem and if you're you know there aren't enough lightning strikes in the tall grass prairie region of the upper midwest to to maintain prairies and savannas so we know from historical record that that's a very anthropogenic ecosystem that was that was humans living in concert with their environments, causing fires to burn so that the habitat would favor 
you know, tasty things, plants, animals, fungi, you know, white-tailed deer and, and wild turkey are edge specialists that they really like that, you know, interface between forest and field or prairie or, or savanna type um, ecosystems. It's funny because in a place like Wisconsin, people are like, oh, go up to the Northwoods. That's where the deer hunting's at. And that's a total accident of history. <laughs> because when European Americans came into places like Illinois and Wisconsin, it was like, hey, tons of white-tailed deer. Set up a farm, start farming, kill the deer, free venison, you know, market hunting and no regulation. Oh. And in short order, they wiped out all the deer. And then the robber barons came into the Northwoods and logged it out. And areas that were not good whitetail habitat at all were suddenly great whitetail habitat at just the right moment when there wasn't any deer left in places like Illinois or southern Wisconsin. And all of a sudden, this tradition of people from Milwaukee or Chicago or Madison driving all the way up to the Northwoods where all the deer were, you know, a whole two, three generations just had that in their mind that that's what you do. You go from where there's no deer in places like Southern Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and you go up to places like Minnesota and uh, Northern Wisconsin and you go deer hunting there. And then of course the secondary growth starts coming in and it turns out to, it's not as great whitetail habitat as it used to be. And at the same time, game regulations and uh, an end to mar market hunting means we have not just the white-tailed deer we had before in places like Illinois and Iowa and Wisconsin, but I mean, I mean, you know how it is. You could hardly invent better white-tail ha white habitat than what we've got in the fields and forest lots of southern Wisconsin, yeah. Illinois, and Iowa. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I see now, though, is uh, the destruction of the tree lines. I mean, the passageways that these deer used to take, uh, you know, or, or pheasants. Like, you don't see a wild pheasant anymore. And it's to get in, you know, five extra rows of corn and then yeah. have all that erosion at the same time. It's like, is it really worth it? And I think most of it boils down to the fact that, the people who own their own land aren't doing that. It's the ones who are leasing it, get them to agree to let them put in, you know, a few extra rows of corn by destroying that habitat. And in turn, now those Osage rows are gone. And then you're getting, you know, if they let it grow back up, it's honeysuckle and other things like that. But, mm. you know, it's just, it's a vicious yeah. cycle. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the greedy white man after the billfold is what it's all about, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, we, and this killing is, the I mean, great the white buffalo. Reason, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the same reason why we don't have Bob white quail in the numbers that we used to in the upper Midwest. And, and I, you know, I do feel a lot of sympathy for the modern farmer um, because I, I think even, even people who are working their own land, yeah, they're, they're stuck with prices that are set. I mean, these prices are set by the market and they've got to compete with uh, uh, other farmers for just, you know, um, you know get, getting as much crop as they can on, onto the marketplace. And the more other farmers are putting their product on there, it, you know, it'll, I think the economics of it, yeah. <laughs> farmers who are living close to the land and probably would love to have hedgerows that support wildlife, 
it, it, you know, causes them to have to rely on the latest methods to get maximum yields out. Um, at least that's my understanding of it. I cannot even begin to pretend to come in here and talk about uh, agriculture, agriculture, agricultural economics. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If, if I'm not mistaken, I'm supposed to be talking about starting fires. So. Well, yeah. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, because like I, I feel like my life was a little bit different than yours, like growing up. But like you're more advanced now with the skills than that you know where I'm at. But like when I was a kid, it was kind of free reign, and I may have contributed to a few uh, uh, controlled slash uncontrolled burns and other things. <laughs> And knives were commonplace. There were stitches many a times and different things along the way. Uh, pretty much had free reign to do whatever I wanted within reason as long as I wasn't harming someone else. <laughs> you know, yeah. my scars are my scars. But uh, it was, you know, and like the whole hunting thing, though, like I did not have like my dad would take me out occasionally. I think maybe like once or twice I went squirrel hunting with them. Um rabbits a couple times and then it was mostly pheasants you know like upland game um but other than that like the whole deer hunting thing i started when i was 16 so i was kind of later in life but i had no mentor and it was just winging it you know me and my buddies not knowing going out with a bow and thinking we were gonna you know take a deer and i believe i think it was like four years before i took my first deer with with archery equipment and it was you know all on my own and it was a great moment and and uh doubled up you know on the on that morning and it was awesome but like that was the first experience if i remember correctly that was you know a culmination but it was i think that that solidified my experience i'm not saying like mentors mentors are a great thing because there's many times where i wanted to put the bow down and not do it but my, you know i'd have a buddy that'd be like come on let's go let's go out and then you you do it and go out and struggle and just i mean blown opportunities and not knowing about wind and not really even knowing the species but now it's like there's so much information out there if you don't look something up and you have questions about it that's on you there is no you know no excuse other than the fact that you don't truly want to know but uh, but a mentor yeah. is a great thing. Oh, is it ever? And it's interesting because, like you said, Luke, there are a lot of great resources out there. But also with so many resources, it becomes a little bit tricky. You know, um, in my in my foraging classes, I oftentimes talk about like, oh, you should get this book or that book. Um, definitely you know, follow this author. And there's there's not a lot of really bad authors out there, but when you start looking at like social media, it can be really useful. There's lots of, there's lots of knowledgeable people out there that are just itching to properly identify a mushroom that you put a picture on online. And there's also some people there that'll just throw out their best guess. And if it's really, it can be really hard to tell what stranger knows their stuff and what stranger doesn't know their stuff on, on a place like social media. So yeah, you know, a trusted mentor can be really important. I happen to be incredibly lucky that I started deer hunting uh, a few years before my grandfather passed away. So that was my window in. I don't know if I ever would have really gotten into hunting if I hadn't had hadn't had that opportunity. 
Um, but there are there are definitely skills that I do try to pick up without a mentor. You know, some of the things I've decided to try to just teach myself. And uh, sometimes a YouTube video can be a lot of help, and sometimes nothing but just getting out there yeah. and and uh, like the first time I started a fire with a bow drill, I was just like. I had a vague inkling from books I had read and, and whatnot, but it would have been nice to have somebody over my shoulder say, no, no, keep going a little bit longer because you've almost got it. Cause certain fire with a bow drill, uh, at least your first few times, it's, it's a skill that is very, it's very easy to be like, I've got to be doing something wrong here when you're doing everything right. You just have to keep drilling on. So, yeah, that's like, uh, when me and my buddy, one of my buddies, we were kids, and so the Army Field Manual on Survival, right? Like, oh yeah, love the that classic. Book. Just the greatest thing ever. <laughs> what I, I can't even remember what it is, twenty one seventy six or something like that, FM twenty one seventy six. Uh, but we, I would, my dad gave that book to me. I was like ten, I think maybe, and that was like my Bible. Dude, I would read that thing. I'd lay in bed every night and look at that thing and like, oh, yeah, this is how you skin out a deer. Oh, look, this is how you make a, a deadfall, you know, or whatever. Yep. But then, yep. you know, like, and then I got to the fire chapters, you know, and like looking at it, me and my buddies, we tried it so many times, you know, a friction fire with a hand drill or a bow drill, and we were never successful. But looking back now, as I know more and doing it, it's like, mm. oh, we were using the wrong materials. <laughs> You know, yeah. too hard of a piece of wood, like trying to use a piece yep. of oak for your your uh, your base, you know, things like that. But I mean, we would get things where it would be smoking and stuff like that, but just never have full success of getting that ember, you know. But um, just looking back, it's pretty cool to see like the stuff we used to try and do and were unsuccessful. But I mean, we'd go we'd go nuts for three four days trying to do it. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Of course, those stories are so great too, because then when you're mentoring somebody else, you can be like, oh, don't, don't, you know, go ahead and give this a try for a few minutes, but don't try it for the four days that I tried <laughs> to do it, you know, or, or, uh, yeah, don't, don't track a deer, deer off in that direction. You're, you're never going to get anywhere. So, yeah, yeah, that's, well, the best thing I learned is, uh, be friends with a person that has a tracking dog, a, an actual oh, tracking sh- dog. That's like, the greatest resource ever as far as deer hunting and tracking an animal. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was you mentioned earlier about the uh, tallow soap and... I've never actually yeah, made it. Yeah. I've read about it and stuff. So I'm just kind of curious, like, how far do you go and do you get involved? Do you use, like, campfire ash or, you know, <laughs> like, wood ash to make your own, uh, like, essentially, I guess, lie? Or uh, what, what do you do and how do you go about it? Yeah, I, I have used my own homemade lie one time and the product didn't turn out that great. Um, I think that was about the second or third time that I ever made soap. So, gosh, going back about, I think I've been making soap for about 13 years or so. Um, and you know, as, as many of us deer hunters know, um, the 
the taste of uh, of, of deer tallow. It's a, it's an acquired taste, right. uh, to say the least. Um, it's it's an incredibly saturated fat, um, so it's it's prone to feeling waxy as soon as it hits your tongue. So um, hunting deer that had a lot of fat on them, I wanted to make use of it, and I picked up a really good book. A long time ago, um, long enough ago that Borders Bookstore was still around. So I'm I'm dating myself there, but uh, that's where I picked up a book by I think it was Dennis Walrod on making the most of your deer, and I have and that, that book. Had, <laughs> oh, that is such a good book. Um, I still I still reference the chart in there for like how long to age my deer depending on on the temperature and everything, and and that was. That was the book that I first used to like learn the very basics for butchering deer as well. And there was a chapter in there on making soap. And I thought, you know, I'll give this a go. And um, my first my first uh, time I made soap, you know, it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of a misadventure. I, I made it really thin. Like I, I uh, you're supposed to. Uh, cure soap and let it set up um, and and nice and slow. And I put it in a, in a jelly roll dish, so it didn't. Uh, it cooled off really fast, and some of the lye separated out. Um, and I could I it, it, I being a novice at making soap, I had no idea that it was that it was lye that I was looking at, and not water. So I cut up the soap and I was using it, and I was noticing that I was getting like a mild chemical burn, oh, no. uh, just like. Just on, on highly sensitive spots, you know, it was it was just just enough lie left over that it was like a, a mild irritation in highly sensitive spots, and um, so that was a learning curve right there. Um, and then the next year, I made it and it turned out really well. And both those times, I I bought lie just straight from the hardware store, the kind that you use to clear drains and whatnot. Um, I think it was my third time that I tried making. Like I put uh, wood ash, hardwood ash, into a hopper with that was lined with newspaper and poured water over it, and it it uh, got the lye solution out. But the problem with that is it's really hard to to figure out the concentration of your lye solution there. So my soap didn't turn out all that well that time, and you know, I was also new at soap making, so it was a little hard to tease apart, like if it was my technique that was off or if it was the lie that was off. Um, but I just went back to the tried and true, and, and have ever since then just bought lie from from the store um, because it, you know, when you have, uh, I mean, I've made twenty pound batches of soap before off of deer. If it's you know one of those seasons where. I get two or three just really big does um, that have a, a nice layer of fat on the rump. Um, and it's it's not something that, you know, when you honor the resource, I don't like to play around and be like, oh, well, that, that didn't work, so I'll just toss that batch. So I decided to not mess with, with success. And since my second batch worked so well, on my fourth batch, I just went back to making it with uh, the lie from the hardware store. And that's what I've used ever since. Um, I've tweaked it out a little bit here and there. Um, I've put in some like essential oils of fir tree um, and wintergreen in there to kind of give it some like uh, foresty smells. I've made pine tar soap, which you, know, you put a little bit of pine tar in with with your fat, um, and that makes for a really good shaving bar. Um, you can use that. For, uh, that's I, I've been using that for 
years and years for all my shaving needs. Um, so I, I made soap and I have not bought, I haven't bought store-bought soap for many, many years. It's interesting because I, I taught my wife how to make soap um, probably about 10 years ago. And she doesn't tend to make it out of, out of deer tallow. She makes it out of um, olive oil or coconut oil or, or anything, a- anything she, that strikes her fancy at the grocery store. Um, but then she's gone on to teach friends of hers how to make soap. And they're making soaps that, you know, my mind just looks like it just looks so normal and plain. <laughs> it's just these it's just these like light brown bars that they, they kind of smell like fresh baked bread from from when I'm rendering out the fat. That it just gets a little bit of those um, browning chemicals going on there as I as I melt down the fat. Um, but they're doing stuff like swir- color swirls in it and all sorts of stuff. So it's. It's one of those like the the student has become the master, and I'm I'm just sitting there making plain unscented or pine tar bars of deer tallow soap, and uh, and uh, they took it they take it to the next level. So and that's <laughs> that's that's really that's really cool to see. Uh, not this past year, but the year before at the Midwest Fall Harvest Festival, I I taught a class on on making soap with deer tallow, um, and it wouldn't surprise me if a few people in that class are already. Are already becoming masters at the craft, um, where I I feel like I've plateaued with uh, just the, a utilitarian bar that is unscented that I wash with before I go out into out into the woods to hunt deer. So I mean, what better to wash cycle. with than the deer itself, right? So right, yeah. There's something really poetic about it. <laughs> no, that's perfect. You know, so, uh, like for the essential oils and stuff, did you make your essential oils, or was it something that was like purchased or? How'd you go about uh, that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I have purchased essential oils, and I have also put um, balsam balsam fir um, pitch, uh, you know, just a little bit into a bar. Uh, I didn't want to put in too much because I wasn't kind of sure how that would play with the tallow, and it didn't really uh, give it a whole lot of scent either. So um, that particular batch was perfectly fine for soap but i couldn't really pick up on the scent uh when i scent soap i usually buy essential oils yeah yeah i don't yep. like because to to make essential oils you need a ridiculous amount of whatever plant you're utilizing right i mean it's like a ridiculous amount it's yeah it's a process that i'm not terribly familiar with i've heard a number of my herbalist friends say that um, the, the stuff you buy at the store for the most part should only be used, um, you know, very in very limited quantities and never internally because of the the strength of it. Right. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And then of course you could infuse oil, and it just makes me think like when you're making soap, say you use, utilize olive oil. If you infuse the olive oil before you did it with like yarrow and then something that had like a wonderful scent as well might be kind of an interesting approach to making the soap now that you bring that oh up. for sure <laughs> for sure yeah i've made lip balm before and i've never done that with deer tallow i've always used um olive oil but i've infused that with uh like the ester of wintergreen nice so yeah, yeah. fresh on those balm. chapped lips <laughs> yep yep um one of the other things i was going to ask you was uh like plant families, what's your favorite and kind of why? Oh, that's oh, Luke, that's gonna be too hard. <laughs> um, that's 
So, because um, I don't have a particular one, because every season provides something different for me. But exactly, and for me, for me, it's like that almost, but in spades, because every day, um, it's 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 something different. Um, you know, oftentimes, whatever plant it is that I'm like learning about, or or just discovered. Um, I remember one time. Um, one time I was bringing a picture of a plant to a friend of mine, Sam Thayer, and he took a look at it. And he's like, that's the most exciting plant I've seen all month. And I was like, well, what is it? He's like, I don't know. That's what's so exciting about it. He was, <laughs> he was just super jazzed that it's like, I don't know what that is. Um, it's funny because I ended up looking at looking it up and I think it was a speedwell. It was a, in the Veronica genus. Um, and I, I checked out some ethnobotanical information on it and it said that it was used to treat deer sickness, which is apparently a malady that one gets from eating too much venison. So hmm. um, I haven't had a chance to try it out, but I had two new goals in life after reading that. One was to eat <laughs> enough venison to see if deer sickness is actually a thing. And then two was to see if if the this Veronica species would actually like help out with that situation, if it's a real thing. So... Yeah. <laughs> um, plant families that are almost my favorite. You know, um, I'm a real big fan of sassafras. I just, I love sassafras. So that's, that's one of my, that's one of my favorite plants, not a family, but a, right. just a particular plant. Um, you know, the conifers, uh, the pine, the, the pine family, um, that's going to be way up there because you know they they please the eye in the middle of winter they're this is always there for you and so useful too you can uh, you know make infusions with the needles uh, to get some vitamin c or you can flavor salts or sugars with with the needles and you can do that any time of year that's always a nice thing you know too one of the wonders and joys of foraging is is that it's so seasonal and and you, you like just uh there's something magical about knowing that this is it you got to grab this thing right now because there's you know there's mushrooms you can dry but then there's also mushrooms that they don't really like to be dried right. that well they don't work that well so you, you got to get it while you can and uh um and then there's those other plants that are, are they're kind of nice because once you really get into the foraging lifestyle and you you acknowledge and enjoy the fact that things are so highly seasonal there's also something special about those ones that you can kind of find whenever you want and you can just go out to them and, and, you know, so juniper berries or, or pine needles are going to be amongst that group. Once you can find, you know, when, when you really need them, uh, even if you were negligent and putting them up in the fall or, or whenever they were in season. So do you utilize yeah. uh, juniper berries for like medicine and stuff or, uh, that's a really good question. I do utilize your juniper berries a good deal. Um, I don't know if I've ever even looked up if they are good for a specific malady. Um, one thing I always stress my, in both my, um, herbalist classes, like medicinal classes or my foraging classes is that Venn diagram of medicine and food you know, in, it's really easy on our Western culture to think, oh, you know, this is food over here and that's medicine over there. Um, and I think at, at a certain level, we know better. But, you know, if you have scurvy, 
then oranges aren't just food, that's medicine. You know, you're getting vitamin C because your condition is a vitamin C deficiency. Um, and I mean, although it pains me to say it, Food if you're is severely, if, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're if you're severely malnourished, Twinkies are a medicine, you know, um, <laughs> because because that's what your body needs right then. Um, so so I do use juniper berries a lot in wild game cooking. Mostly, uh, I also put them in homemade sauerkraut, which is like a traditional German preparation for sauerkraut. Really? Um, yeah. Yep. I the did not know berries. that. Yep. Yeah, it's funny because whenever I come across a, an eastern red cedar, um, which is a misnomer because uh, it's a, it's actually a juniper, um, you know, I point out the berries to people, and almost right away people are like, ah, gin, and that's a, you know, that that's absolutely right. That's you know, you just flavor, you flavor vodka with juniper berries, and you've got gin. And not terribly long ago, you know, a few hundred years ago. It was a medicine, right? And and then, of course, people started to abuse medicine, as people do. <laughs> I mean, it's you know you have to look no further than the most recent headlines on the opioid crisis to see that times don't necessarily change. But uh, you know, that wasn't it wasn't terribly long ago that if you if if something ailed you, you went to the pharmacist and got yourself some gin for. To, to take care of whatever whatever particular problem you had. So yeah, I think like uh, certain types of infections, like within, I want to say like maybe the kidneys or the urinary tract or something like that, is like what juniper berries are like good for. But they're also like the same time too much can be damaging to your kidneys oh. and stuff too. So it's like. There's that fine line that you better know what you're doing uh, yeah. before you fully utilize their full potential to, you know, heal yourself when it comes to that. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. there's some of those that you come across where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, we use it when we're cooking. And it's like those small doses, the micro doses of something that could be bad is actually good for you. But then when you take it to that next level it could uh, potentially harm you or do, you know, renal failure or something like that. So, yeah, absolutely. Although it's funny because, it, it, you know, nutmeg is not really that different either. Yeah. Um, you know, it, a lot of these, a lot of these things too, uh, a lot of people will crush a juniper berry. They'll smell it. They'll think it's pleasant. They might try it. They might find it pleasantly flavored, but very strong. Uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these medicinals um, and, and edibles, for that matter, they they've got their own mechanisms to prevent us from you know chowing down too much on them. And uh, I don't I don't know too many people that would really want to have more than you know a half dozen to a dozen crushed juniper <laughs> berries right. um, in, in their in their venison along with their venison pot roast because it would start to give it a flavor that would go from pleasant to just a bit too much yeah. really quickly so <laughs> definitely yeah. over herbaceous or uh what savory um yeah resinous yeah yeah but yeah. uh the like uh yarrow i mean i don't find that taste to be pleasant whatsoever but at the same time it's in your head it's like well i know it's good for me so like dried yarrow to me is okay but if you eat uh -huh. like fresh yarrow and just take like a small handful of it and put it in your mouth and chew it. It is not pleasant. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and one thing, too, is everybody's different. So, you know, I've, I've talked to people where they don't mind. They don't mind it at all. <laughs> and then, of course, of course, drying it is totally different, too, because uh, sweet fern uh, is something that I'm very fond of making infusions with. And the dry herb is, for me, is really pleasant. And if I use the fresh herb, it'll give me a little bit of an upset stomach. And I've talked to some other people and they're like, really? I've never had that experience at all. It's like, it's just me. Maybe it's just me. Or maybe I haven't run into anybody else who's had that issue. But uh, yeah. But everybody's everybody's different like that. It's interesting. But uh, so, yeah, that was kind of what I wanted to ask you. And I don't want to drag it on too long because I know we could talk forever. So oh, um, for sure. <laughs> before we go. I just kind of want to ask you, and, and that way all the listeners can know too, where can they find you, reach out to you, maybe take some classes from you, and all that good kind of stuff as well? Oh, absolutely. So I do classes through eagleoutdoorskills.com. Uh, that's uh, where, I, where I post the classes that I, that I, that I run myself. Um, and then, of course, I can be found on social media. I've got a Facebook page, Eagle Outdoor Skills, and... Uh, an Instagram eagle underscore outdoor underscore skills uh, at G- at uh, Instagram, so that's where you can find me on those platforms. Um, and then also, you know, just uh, if if someone tracks me down, um, you know, I'm I'm often all too happy to talk about this <laughs> stuff. So, um, you know, any which way that people can get a hold of me, I I also teach classes at. Uh, functions like the the Midwest Fall Harvest Festival and some folk schools hire me to teach classes there, such as uh, um, Folklore Village in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, uh, and uh, and other places. So uh, I I should probably start putting those places up on my uh, on my website so people can go through there too to find those those offerings. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you yeah. so much for coming on, sharing, and. Uh... And uh, it was great. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. It's been great talking to you, Luke. Thanks. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish this is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here from the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters enjoy the best fishing panama city beach has to offer during chasing the sun sundays at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment i'm will cooper host of hunt stands make your mark podcast if you haven't already download the free waypoint tv app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.